Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the History Hour here on KZMU. I'm your host and guide, Blaine. And so today is also another special day for episode two of rafting history on the Colorado River. Um, and so, yes, yeah, season is winding down to an end. People are rolling up boats and they're uh, stacking up their uh, their oars and their paddles. And uh, so the temperature is definitely changing here. But we still like to think about and talk about the history of the Colorado River here. So I have once again Mr. Roy Webb uh, on the show today. And uh, so last time we talked a lot about sort of the beginning of um, history on the Colorado River with humans and uh, indigenous people. And we talked a little bit about John Wesley Powell. Um, so, and today I really want to kind of get into more of the guiding and sort of all uh, these early river runners that really set the stage for what we do today on the river. So, um, Roy, how you doing, my friend? Doing okay, thank you. Awesome, awesome. So, yeah, I'm I'm super excited about this. I know we have a lot of folks uh, in Moab listening, and as I mentioned, river season's coming to an end, but you know, we still got a lot of a uh, lot of river runners still in town and all over the country that are uh, tuning in today. So, uh, yeah, we're definitely uh, looking forward to this. Great. Thank you. So, you know, I kind of want to just jump right into sort of the, the early, um, days of commercial running the river. Um, and I believe that would be with Mr. Norm Nevels. It, yeah, it would. I mean, you also could count, uh, David Dexter Rust, who was a uh, local guy from, um, St. George, who started taking people down Glen Canyon as a commercial guide in the 1920s. And uh, he used folding canoes. It mm -hmm. was kind of a high thing. It, his clients were very wealthy. And the trips would be combination river and uh, horsebacking trips. And they do, this is in the early 1920s, they do Glen Canyon, one or two clients at the most, and then uh, get horseback and climb onto the Kaferowitz Plateau and so on. Mm -hmm. But as you said, thinking of what we think of today as commercial guiding happened uh, at the same time in two different places, Norm Nevels and Bus Hatch. Mm. Right on. So can you sort of describe <clears throat> what river running would have been back then, sort of compared to like what we see um, down there today, you know, anywhere from like West Water all the way down to height, basically? Yeah, uh, there wasn't really a lot of... Uh, I mean, there wasn't any commercial guiding in Westwater, really. I mean, a few people had gone through. And I should recommend a new uh, new expanded version of a book, Westwater Lost and Found, that Mike Milligan wrote some years ago. That's everything he wanted to know about Westwater, except that he's, now he's found much more. And he just published a, a newer version, expanded version, hmm. by Mike Milligan, Westwater Lost and Found. And anybody interested in the history of Westwater, I would highly recommend it really is everything you ever wanted to know. He's, he's a great researcher. So there wasn't much on that. There wasn't, this is say, let's talk about the 1930s. There really wasn't any commercial guiding in Desolation Canyon because um, the, there just wasn't any reason. There was mostly ranches and stuff hmm. from um, Moab down again, the, any kind of commerce was either hauling freight down to the oil um, wells at uh, in the Schaefer, the Schaefer Wells, uh, 
by the Moab Garage Company, which had great big powered barges. They would haul all kinds of food and oil and, you know, gas and horses and all kinds of stuff down to those wells. Or uh, from Green River down on the Green River, down to the various ranches and orchards and everything down below. But when you and then nobody really guided in Cataract Canyon because everybody thought you were crazy to go there. The graveyard <laughs> of the it had it had a, a terrible reputation, and um, so the real guiding as we think of it today started with Norm Nevels on the San Juan River. Mm-hmm. Norm was uh, born in 1909. He was from Davis, California. Moved out in the um, early 1930s to Mexican Hat because his father, who was kind of a wanderer, he had been in the gold rush in the Klondike in the 1890s, settled in Mexican Hat because of, there was an oil boom kind of going on. And at uh, the time, it was called Gooding, I think the town was. And um, so Norm came out to join his dad, and they drilled for oil for a while. Then during the Depression, there was a thing called the Rainbow Bridge Monument Valley Expeditions that were kind of uh, make-work projects, you know, WPA projects, to explore the area. And Neville's got hooked up with them, uh, helping haul supplies down to some of their camps. That really caught his interest. Hmm. So just about the middle 1930s, I'm trying to think of the exact date, but um, he was contacted by somebody who came to um, Mexican Hat and asked him to take him down the river. And um, he had, in the meantime, he and his parents, mostly his mother, but his dad too, had established the lodge, the Neville's Lodge in Mexican Hat. And so this was one of the guests who came to stay at the lodge, wanted to go down the river. So Norm used the old, the like folding boats that the Rainbow Bridge of Monument Valley expeditions had used and took this person down. Again, that really that really hooked him on it. He really saw a potential there. Later, just a little bit later, he met uh, a woman from Oregon named Doris Drown, who was there to uh, visit family. And they fell in love, got married. Uh, their honeymoon trip was down the San Juan in a, a famous story of an uh, old uh, boat made of old horse trough boards and various other lumber using um i've heard two versions of this one was that he used road signs with the you know the sign on the end is oars and the other is that he used uh, sucker rods off an oil field a, a pump jack uses a thing called a sucker rod that's a metal rod so anyway just a cobbled together boat took doors down as their honeymoon and that really got him got him going but it wasn't really a commercial outfit until in 1937 a woman named um Elzada Clover, who was a uh, scientist from the University of Michigan, and she was a botanist. And so she was a specialist in plants, and especially succulent plants, cacti. And so she came to the Neville's Lodge looking for it. And Norm was always very much a promoter. He talked her into going down to San Juan, and then he further talked her into, um, or he talked to her about going down to San Juan. But then as they talked, he got all enthusiastic and said, let's go down the Grand Canyon because there are cactuses there you can't imagine. And so she uh, fell for it, I'd say. <laughs> and um, so she went back to Michigan and she gathered up some funding and her materials and her assistant, a young woman named Lois Jotter. And in the meantime, Norm started building boats. He built uh, three boats that he called cataract boats. And it's an original design. He claimed that he got the design from his father who had seen these same kinds of boats used on the Yukon River during the uh, Klondike Gold Rush. So him and a guy named Don Harris, who was the USGS gauger in San, in Mexican Hat, um, got together. He 
talked to a plywood company. They had just come out with marine plywood, so waterproof plywood. Hmm. And uh, he talked to Harbor Plywood Company. And so they given him a bunch of big sheets of plywood. He, he and Don Harris built three boats in Mexican hat in the spring of 1938. Lois and uh, Elzita showed up. He got Don and then a couple other people and uh, guys who, who had never been boating before, but he talked him into it again. And they so they set off from Green River, Utah in the late summer of 1938. And Norm, even though he'd been on San Juan a little bit, he really had no idea what he was doing. You know, of course, uh, from Green River down, it was all nice and flat all the way down through Labyrinth and Stillwater Canyons. They get to Cataract Canyon and it was overwhelming. And so, you know, they he he was worried that uh, he was going to lose somebody. So he kind of acted like a, an officer, you know, I mean, he was always kind of barking orders to everybody. Some people got upset with him and they, at one point, you know, a, a boat got away and, and they had to chase it, you know, the usual kind of things that would, and misadventures would happen. Hmm. And they um, finally made it through cataracts. And remember, of course, in those days, it was 45 miles of rapids instead of 11 miles of rapids. And so they made it into cataracts. They got into Glen Canyon. At one point, they saw a plane fly overhead. And what had happened was the the uh, Neville's party was lost in Glen Canyon, lost on the river. And so that got into the papers. And a plane flew over and looked for him. And there were reporters when he showed up at Lee's Ferry. Norm loved this. He loved publicity. So he, um, at that point, Don Harris couldn't really keep going. So Norm talked somebody else into um, rowing, and they went on down the Grand Canyon. <laughs> and so they made it through. They had quite a uh, lot, wow. lot of adventures and um, made it through the Grand Canyon, and they met see is that when they met uh, harry ellison i think so harry ellison had heard about this mm-hmm. harry ellison was another early kind of outfitter guy he had he'd been uh in world war one and had just been a wanderer ever since and was living in a cave in uh lake mead around lake mead so he heard about this and he thought he'd take his little putt-putt boat up and uh, meet nevels and tow him out and so he goes up with a friend of his and they didn't tie the boat up, and it floated away. Oh, so he's, he landed on the bank. Finally, Neville's comes by. They find the boat. He tows him out. And Neville's got a lot of publicity out of it. Mm. And he really loved that. You know, he was, he was a real one for publicity. So that started him off on his commercial career. Mm. And then uh, he, he liked the big trips, but he also started running the San Juan. And that he ended up doing that 10 or 12 times a year. And he'd uh, charge... $75. Later on, it, it the price grew up uh, before he died up to about $150, $125, I think. And um, for a trip from Mexican Hat all the way down the San Juan to Glen Canyon to Lee's Ferry. And those, uh, he used a different kind of boats for those it called them San Juan punts. And it was squared off on both ends. It wasn't covered over. And, you know, the San Juan's not, not near as uh, much as a, a, um, as dangerous, of course, as the Grand Canyon. And there's actually a guy in Bluff named Cody, who's, I'm sorry, I forgot his last name, if he's listening, who is building replicas of those and using them on the river. Oh, that's so. Cool. Uh, yeah. Yeah, very interesting. I haven't had a ch- chance yet to go down and go with him or anything, but I talked to him at the recent uh, River Runners Hall of Fame, and it, it sounds very cool. I'd love to see one of those things going. So anyway, uh, Norm then gets more ambitious, decides he's going to go all the way down the river from Green River, Wyoming, all the way down through the Grand Canyon. 
So he does that in 1940. And he takes Doris, his wife, Doris, and then uh, uh, he had three cataract boats. So he had three boatmen and probably two passengers per boat. And I know one of them was a park service ranger. Uh, one of them was um, a guy named uh, Barry Goldwater. If you've heard of Barry Goldwater, very famous Republican of the 1940s, 50s, 60s from Arizona. And uh, very uh, influential in the Colorado River Storage Project. So Barry Goldwater grew up in Arizona and he always wanted to go down the, the Grand Canyon. He meets the trip in Green River, Utah and goes on with them through Grand Canyon. It turned out to be a very arduous trip. As you can imagine, this is all through the height of the summer. Um, Neville's was, he was a little more confident, but still kind of, you know, a lot of people got irritated with him for parking orders at him and stuff because he was nervous about what might happen. Mm-hmm. I think they had one flip on that trip uh, in, uh, where was it? Chandler Rapid, I think, in the Grand Canyon. And one of the one of the women on the trip ended up just hating him for the rest of her life, unfortunately. <laughs> Barry Goldwater said of it, it was, uh, talking about the cost of it, which for the time was quite expensive. He said um, it was a lot of money to pay to work like a dog and broil like a weenie. So um, that he, they survived that trip. Neville's by this time had a firm idea of what he wanted to do, and that which was one big trip a year. You know, usually Grand Canyon, sometimes Green River and Grand Canyon, and so on. And then his San Juan trips, and so he set about to really set that up. And he started writing letters. He had an old uh, typewriter in uh, Mexican hat. And he would buy carbon paper by the ream and probably people that don't know what carbon paper is, but it was paper with uh, a kind of a sheet behind it that when you struck a key on the typewriter, it would put an impression on the, on the other paper. So you're actually making a copy of the letter as you type it. And so he would write these letters, four or five, six page single space letters that he would send out to people and as to extol the virtues of going down the San Juan or the Grand Canyon, talking to them all about how beautiful it was, how there was wildlife, how there were Native Americans and ruins, all those things. And he was very persuasive. And he started gaining a following. Mm-hmm. So in 1941, he did another such trip. And uh, this one was only two boats, I think, and just a few people. And then um, thinking back on my history here, 1942 was the last one he could do. In the meantime, he's still doing the San Juan trips. The last big trip he could do was 1942 because uh, people couldn't get around. During This is during World War II. Oil, gas, and tires were rationed. Mm. And so you know, couldn't drive from Indiana or California to get to Mexican Hat because you, you didn't, couldn't have the gas and the, you know, if you didn't have any tires. So um, he just concentrated. He got a job as the water gauger in, in uh, Mexican Hat, dodged the draft kind of. And because um, he was older and he had kids by then and uh, then resumed his uh, river career in 1946, the year after the war started. Mm-hmm. But this time he was challenged sort of by a guy, um, Hack Miller. He was a writer for the Deseret News in Salt Lake City. And he wrote in a column that um, Neville's was nothing, basically said Neville's was nothing compared to the bravery of Bus Hatch and people like that. And Neville's got upset. And uh, mm. the hatches had been up on the uh, on the the salmon and the snake, the main salmon and the snake, uh, for you know in the late 1930s. So Norm decided he was going to go up there and show them. So he put together a trip. This is um, 
this trip also included Doc Marson. Marson, who was a famous Colorado River historian, mm-hmm. started with Nevels in 1942 on his on his last Grand Canyon trip before the war. And so they went down the main salmon and the snake, which before the big dams were built up there had some very big rapids. I think one was called Buck Buck Canyon, maybe I forget anyway. I'm not really an expert in the San Juan. But uh, so they went down. Uh, they had a couple of mishaps, flipped a boat. Norm Norm actually never flipped a boat himself, but but his his pickup boatman did sometimes. So and they also used his San Juan boats because he had a lot of people on the trip. And so that was they weren't really suited for really big water. So that was 46. 47, he comes back and does the um upper green again, the upper green, and then takes out and then goes down and runs the Grand Canyon. 48 and 49, he runs the Grand Canyon uh, again. And by this time he had a big following. He knew people all over the country uh, came to him and, you know, would contact him and go on his trips, go on his San Juan trips, uh, which were bread and butter. They're the ones that he really made his living on. And um, so 49 was his last trip because unfortunately in September of 1949, in the meantime, he had become a pilot. He had bought a little um, Piper Cub to get around because the roads in Mexican hat were so terrible. And so he he would fly. He went to Grand Junction, took flying lessons, and then he would flit, as he called it, all around in his plane. So in September 1949, Doris got word that a relative was ill, I think, in California. He was going to fly her to Grand Junction so that she could catch a commercial flight to go see this relative and took off from he had made a little airstrip. If you go to Mexican Hat and then drive drive north toward the Moki Dugway. As you get, there's really only one big flat spot in there. Off to the left, you can find his airstrip, and if you go over there, you can find the uh, the 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 uh, foundation of the little hangar that he built. Oh, so nice. um, sadly, um, he he lost power, took off, lost power, tried to bring it around, uh, and failed. And there's a little cliff at the end of the runway, smashed right into that cliff. Mm. Full load of fuel, both of them burned to cinders, and so. Um, that was the end of Norm, but he, his reputation really stayed on. I mean, people, uh, people, there were people who loved him. He was one of those Colorado River figures mm-hmm. that people loved or hated, and there was very little middle ground. Uh, a lot of people came to dislike him because he was a showman. He liked to tell stories. He liked tall tales. He liked to put on acts. One of his favorite acts on his San Juan trips in Glen Canyon was to go. Uh, there was a certain place he'd camp. I think it was Outlaw Cave. And in the winter, he would go there and kind of set the camp up, take a bunch of driftwood, haul it up on top of the cliff. Then he would camp there, and then he'd sneak away from the camp at night, and he would go up on top of the cliff, and he would stand up on top of the cliff and yell, Yogi! And then he would yell out this big <laughs> story about Yogi the river god, and on and on. Yeah. And then light the pile of driftwood on fire and push it over the cliff. I mean, this was quite a spectacle, as you can imagine, and not something we would do these days. But um, just those kind of things. He was a, he liked to, in Grand Canyon, he would go look for old mines. And if you found a, a you know, a, a case of dynamite from an old mine that was leaking out nitroglycerin, he would, they would stand off and shoot at it with a pistol until it went off. Mm. And, wow. <laughs> uh, just all kinds of things like that. Yeah. He was just a, he was a real showman. Yeah. So uh, his, that, but unfortunately, he was a better boatman than he was a pilot. Yeah. Oh my so goodness. That was the end of Norm and Doris too. Unfortunately. Yeah. The the uh, company it was taken over by 
uh, um, uh, Jim Rigg, who had been one of his boatmen, and Frank Wright, from, who was from Blanding. Jim Rigg was from Grand Junction and had, had helped teach him how to fly. And Frank Wright was a, just a good old Mormon boy from Blanding mm-hmm. who had rowed a boat times. Kent Frost had rowed a boat for him. And so Jim and Frank took it over. And then um, Frank left when the, they decided on the Glen Canyon Dam. Frank took over as, as like running the boats for one of the salvage surveys on the dam. And Jim and Bo- his brother Bob ran the company. They renamed it Mexican Hat Expeditions. Later on, uh, they sold it to a guy named uh, Gaylord Stavely, who had married um, Joan Neville's, Norm's oldest daughter, and it later became Canyoneers. Hmm. And it's still they still run in the Grand Canyon. And they also run original, they have one original boat that they run, the Sandra, one of Norm's later boats that he built. And then they have a couple others that they're refurbishing to go on their um, Grand Canyon trips. Wow. That's so if amazing. you're interested in Norm, uh, not to plug myself, but I edited his journals. He actually kept journals. Oh, really? He would, he, notes, yeah. On his big Grand Canyon trips, he would keep notes in these little bitty spiral notebooks, you know, just jotting them down. But then in the winter, he would type them out in Mexican hat. And so mm-hmm. they were typed copies of them. So we got all of his, I, I was the, an archivist at the University of Utah Marriott Library Special Collections, and we got all of his papers from his daughter, Joan. And um, so I typed all those out and then worked with Utah State University Press, I think in 2004, and published them as under the title High, Wide, and Handsome, the River Journals of Norman Nevels. Uh, that, he described running a rapid, if he ran it well, he would say, we ran it high, wide, and handsome, is the way he put it. <laughs> and so that's that's his transcribed journals with a lot of annotation, too, of course, which I, I annotated from his letters. So, wow, what a guy! <laughs> I think so too. Very, you know, later on after he died, he kind of sadly his reputation got kind of got trashed by later people. Yeah, because like yeah, I think they were jealous. Part of it, mm-hmm. he was one of the first real popular. Uh, a lot of people really loved him. Then after he died, his reputation got. Uh, it didn't, uh, well, it did get trashed. <laughs> so that yeah. was one of the reasons I wanted to write that book is to rehabilitate that reputation. Right. And so I think he's got taken his place, rightfully so, among uh, River Runners today. He's in the River Runners Hall of Fame mm. in the Al Museum in Green River, Utah. Mm. Interesting. You know, um, you had mentioned a name uh, earlier while you were uh, talking about this, and it reminded me of a question that I had for you. Um, can you tell us about, uh, you know, in 1947, that's when Harry Elson and Georgie White uh, went down the Cataract uh, Canyon and these World War II surplus neoprene boats and the inflatable yeah. rafts, and they left inscriptions down there. Yeah, I, I, I don't know where those are. Oh, OK. <laughs> OK. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, no worries. Can you can you tell us more about like Georgie White and stuff like that? Because she seems, you know, sure. that's, yeah, yeah, that seems to be a pretty, oh, pretty big name out there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She was a, she was always very adventurous. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a hiker, and early on, this is in the, oh, in the 1930s, she was a, a backpacker and hiker and long distance bicycler and so on. And then um, she moved to California. Uh, this would be in the two really early 1940s i think hmm. and um 
was, and in the meantime, she had gotten married. She had a young daughter who by this time was a teenager. I think she was 14 named Sonoma Rose. Hmm. And uh, sadly, one day they were out on a long bicycle journey and Sonoma was hit by a car and killed. And Georgie, as you can imagine, Georgie was totally devastated. Yeah. And so she was living in Southern California at the time and uh, just at, at a loss of what to do with the rest of her life. And at one point she hears that the Sierra Club is showing films taken of the lower Grand Canyon by a guy named Terry Eelson. And as I mentioned, Eelson was a real wanderer, kind of a voyager, Viking kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And that heritage. And so she goes and is just entranced by this. And Harry was always looking for some kind of scheme. And he had, he had wanted to start his own uh, river company. He had got uh, gotten interested in the river. He was working with the, the Boulder Dam project when they were building the, the Hoover, Hoover Dam now mm-hmm. in the late 1930s. And he ran a boat for him. And he got this idea that he wanted to run this boat upriver so the, from the dam site. And so he would do that all, all now and then. And one time, he pushed you too far and he flipped, capsized the boat and, and uh, they fired him. So he got the idea that he wanted to have this Grand Canyon company and he wanted to prove that at, at the time it was considered so dangerous that it was just nothing you could, you know, nobody could do this. You know, it was just crazy to try to do this. Mm-hmm. In fact, when the French kayakers in 1938, they wanted to go through the can- Grand Canyon. They ended up not doing it because the river froze over by the time they got to Lee's Ferry. But they wrote to the uh, superintendent of Grand Canyon. He wrote back and said, if you want to do this crazy thing, you have to post a $10,000 bond for the rescue party, which will have to come and get you. <laughs> so that was the state of what people thought about it yeah. before Neville came along, you know. Mm-hmm. So Aylison uh, says, I'll show you that you can actually, even if you lose your boat in the Grand Canyon, you can float out in your life jacket. And so he talks Georgie into going with him and they go down at i think it was somewhere in the third of 200s in the grand canyon um not maybe it was parachant but that was the he did this twice and so this is i think 1942 and then so he talks georgie into he going with him in life jackets in the big old may west and they had these little thin um, um uh, wetsuits so Ailson never ate much himself because the story was, I guess, that he had he had suffered, uh, he'd been gassed in World War One, damaged his stomach, he couldn't really eat anything. You know, he lived on canned milk and candy, kind of, and mm-hmm. so that's what that's all they had to eat. And so uh, they held on to each other, and there they go into the current, floating down. And in those days, of course, the the Colorado was much more muscular. You know, there was no dam. If you go when the water's high, mm-hmm. higher than. Um, you know, it was just a crazy ride, but they lived, they came out into, uh, they ended up at his, he had a, a place in Quartermaster Canyon on Lake Mead called My my Home, Arizona. And that was a cave he lived in. And so um, they came out, they ended up doing it again a couple of years later in a little, they started out in a little two-man dinghy, like a life raft you'd have in an airplane mm-hmm. in a, during the war. And so... Um, which didn't last very long. And so they did it again. And this time they went farther up. I think they went all the way up to, that might've been the one at, uh, to Whitmore. And they, so they went up farther up and then went all the way down the same thing, just crazy wild, you know, swirling in eddies and getting caught in log jams, and all kinds of things. And, but just amazing. So anyway, they kind of had, they sort of had kind of an affair 
Georgie and Harry. And then um, our, this is after the end, by the end of the war, they were some of the ones who got the idea that instead of life jackets or little bitty dinghies, uh, life rafts, we could use these inflatable boats that are so common now. Mm-hmm. A lot of people had the same idea at that time. You know, the hatches did, uh, the, a lot of, some of the Boy Scouts up in Utah got the idea, and so did Harry and Georgie. And so they went through, um, they were in Grand Canyon in 1949 because they kind of um, kind of leapfrogged with um, Bert Loper's last trip in 1949 when he went down at, and was 80 years old and um, ended up dying, of course, at, uh, was it, mile 25 or so. And the, they were along around the same time. They were on the river at the same time. And then they kind of split up. Ailson went on to form a thing he called uh, uh, Larrabee and Ailson Western River Expeditions. Charles Larrabee was one of the guys who had gone on the 1940 trip with Norm Nevels, and he was one of those who ended up not enjoying the trip. We'll put it that way. <laughs> so he found a, uh, he didn't have a good experience. Yeah. So, so he wanted to found, found this company to sort of take away business from Nevels, and it never really went anywhere. But Ailson stayed around the river the rest of his life. Georgie, however, was just totally smitten. And so she decides that she's going to take that people down the river for low cost and without all the drama and publicity and daring do of the trips that were going on at the time. This by now we're in the 1950s. And Doc Marson, again, who is Otis Marson was his name. He decides um, he went, he's gone down the river a bunch of times with Nevels. They've had a falling out. They don't like each other now. Nevels dies. Marston gets the idea that he wants to go up the river. He wants to go up in a powerboat. And mm. so he, he goes down a few times. These are like little sport, you know, uh, inboard, outboard, you know what I mean, like you'd see on a lake. Mm-hmm. And so um, they, they made several trips where they would go down and uh, they'd stash gas in driftwood piles or in, you know, in cliffs and things like that. And then they tried to go up and they never really could. And uh, so, but that was really kind of the state of, they were the ones that were really getting all the publicity. Georgie says, I don't want to do that. I want to take every everyday people, just common people down the river. I don't want to charge them very much. These are going to be uh, share the experience trips. So she starts going on her Tin Man. Then she hooks three Tin Mans together as a triple rig and takes them down. That It took her a while to get the rigging right. So at a couple of times, uh, the boats would flop over onto each other, and then everybody else would call that a Georgie sandwich, all the people <laughs> inside. And sometimes bend underneath, and you know she had a lot of problems with that, but she still went, and she charged very little money. And uh, the, the trips were just kind of insane. I mean, they were very low equipment, and, uh, you know, your, your dinner would be, she would take cans, cans of food and water to drink. And that's all you had. Mm. And uh, <laughs> so the cans, she would, she had a, a kid's, uh, um, kid's little kid's pool, swimming pool, heat up the cans in boiling water, throw them into this pool. You fished it out and that was your dinner. And the label had come <laughs> off. So you didn't know what it was. And, uh, but people loved it. People just loved her yeah. because he was just such a showman. I mean, such a show show woman. And at the end of the one of her trips, you would at that uh, they would stop at Diamond Creek. This is Grand Canyon, and they would stop at Diamond Creek, and they would have the ceremony to initiate you into uh, the the Royal Order of Colorado River Rats. 
mm-hmm. and you'd get a little pin. But what you had to do was uh, you get into Diamond Creek. They would throw mud all over you, rub eggs in your hair, whack you on the butt with a paddle, and then you were initiated. And so uh, <laughs> people loved the trip. And um, then she got the idea that I'm gonna, I want to take more people and even lower cost. So she, she bought some big pontoons and she hooked um, two of them together. Or was it three? Turn to picture it. And then, then she would take the big pontoon tube and put it down inside the other ones. So it was like, it was just a big, soft mass of rubber. Mm. And then the whole thing was held together with ropes. And then, I mean, there was no frame like you'd think of, we would think of today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there would be a, um, a motor well. So a little, little frame off the back, a little motor well where she put a, like a 10 horsepower motor. And then everybody else would just scramble onto the, the thing onto the big boat and hold onto the ropes. And so her style of boating was just down the middle. She had loops in the motor well that when they got to a big rapid in the Grand Canyon, she would turn off the motor, uh, put her wrist through those loops, squat down, and there they would go. You know, there was no no running the river. You just went. Yes. <laughs> so God. so people bounced off that one then, but she would get them and uh, everybody was happy and just loved it. Again, people loved her for this. Yeah. A lot of people, by this time, there's starting to be other outfitters. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Mexican hat is still running the Grand Canyon. Um, a couple other people are starting to run the Grand Canyon and everybody uh, looked askance at her because she was, well, for first thing, she was a woman, which was just not done mm-hmm. at the time. I mean, yeah. The, the macho guys were just horrified that this woman was taking, and she was taking bus drivers and waitresses and clerks and, you know, people that weren't macho daring Common guys. Folk, yeah. And, yeah, exactly. And down the river. And so um, her, she, yeah, I won't say um, people disliked her, but, you know, they looked askance at her because of that. She finally, um, you know, I used to actually got to meet her a few times on the river. The very first Grand Canyon trip I did with, I was as taken as an interpreter. It was a history trip with Grand Canyon Expeditions in 1985. And so uh, went to Lee's Ferry with a crew and I was just kind of buzzing around. Ah, I'm going to the Grand Canyon. And there's this huge pile of rubber down at one end of the ramp at Lee's Ferry. And so I go down there and looking at it. All of a sudden this little gnome kind of pops up out of the back and says, what are you looking at? And uh, so I I said, well, you know, I saw I talked to her. She invited me onto the boat and we talked a little bit. And then every now and then we'd run into her at uh, always at Deer Creek. She'd be stopped at Deer Creek and never, she'd send people up the hike. And then she would sit on her boat and drink Coors in her, you know, in her uh, leopard skin leotard. And uh, I got invited a couple of times, which was just pure joy, you know, yeah. to sit out on the back of Georgie and drink a Coors and listen to her just carry on and, and just stories. So in her birthday uh, in 1988, I think, uh, the whole river community, I think it was her 80th birthday, the whole river community decided Georgie is one of us. Finally, they put together this big party that was held at the Hatch Warehouse in Marble Canyon. And uh, they had had this huge cake. This was Ted Hatch. Built, made this huge cake in the uh, shape of a boat. And it, it was this gigantic party i got to go oh and it was one of i always joke that if you can remember georgie's party you weren't really there yeah (laughs) quite a bash as you can imagine you can actually see it on youtube if you look on youtube there are film of it um and i think it's just called georgie's birthday party so you (laughs) you can see you know 
of the trip at the time. She really made an impact. You know, she was as the first one to really introduce people, kind of everyday people, instead of people with a lot of money. You know, the other uh, Mexican hat expeditions, various others charged quite a bit. Georgie's trips were inexpensive. They were advertised for everybody, wife, kids, everyone, you know, people. And um, she really made an impact in that. Mm. She really opened up, as Doc Marston said about her, she opened the river up to the lame, halt, blind, and the crippled. Mm -hmm. So not in a very nice way, you didn't say that. Mm. But still, she really made an impact. Yeah. Uh, For reading about her, there's a book by a guy named Dick Westwood, Richard Westwood, who was, uh, he was a guy from Moab, an old guy. He got interested in her and wrote a book published by University of Nevada Press, Georgie White, Woman of the River, I think. There's an earlier book that's that's not really as good, but Dick's book is great. I mean, it really goes into the what the environment was like at the time, mm-hmm. the, you know, the what the community was like at the time, yeah, and uh, so on. So I'd I'd really recommend that for more on Georgie. Awesome, you know, and and so you know, you know, we got people like Neville's and Georgie White, and just sort of setting the stage, you know, sort of like for like what we do here in Moab today. And so we're starting to see, I guess, like late fifties into the sixties, things are, you know, this is really getting popular out here and kind of, kind of a weird time, you know, cause you know, damming up the river and all that. How did, can you briefly describe how, that sort of all transpired and kind of what the rafting community was kind of maybe thinking about that back in that time and sort of how that affected um, basically river running from Moab down to height. You mean the dam? Yeah. Or like, yeah, you know, when, when, when they were damming up the Glen Canyon and um, you know, I'm sure the river community wasn't very happy with that at the time. No, no, not really. I mean, there was there weren't very many commercial outfitters. There was Smoky Mac. Mm-hmm. There was Atwa. There was Hatch would take a trip now and then through Glen Canyon, and Cataract Georgie would take a trip now and then. <clears throat> but most of it was private boaters in those days. Gotcha. And they were people who were, you know, they were very upset of it and they agitated against it. Ken Slight was another who was taking. He was taking commercial trips, and of course he was horrified by the whole thing. And Katie um, yeah. Lee who wasn't, I mean, she was a, uh, she wasn't a commercial guide or anything, of course, but mm. she, she had a lot of time with uh, Tad Nichols and Frank Wright. They call themselves We Three, and they spent months in Glen Canyon. Mm. And so they they fought against it, but they didn't really have a constituency. Glen Canyon didn't have a constituency because it wasn't a, it wasn't protected land. It wasn't a national park or a national monument like Dinosaur, yeah. where they had the big, Park Dam. Mm-hmm. So Glen Canyon didn't really have that constituency. A few outfitters and Boy Scouts and conservationists uh, didn't have the voice that uh, it needed to have to protect it. So the um, what it did do when they announced the plans for the dam is use of Glen Canyon shot up. You know, so many people heard about this. They mm-hmm. heard that Glen Canyon was going to be um, covered and drowned. And so people just started flocking to Glen Canyon. Because you know, you could run in anything, you can run in energy practically. So yeah. boys, uh, church groups, um, private boaters, just all kinds of people started going through Glen Canyon. And I always say this: one of my little things is that you read the book, "The Place No One Knew." It's actually 
the place that David Brower didn't know because everybody else did. Hmm. Uh, lots, lots of people went through Glen Canyon and from the 1940s, when they started, late 1940s, when they started talking about the dam and then when they decided to build it in the early 1950s, the Colorado River Storage Project was passed and Glen Canyon was uh, put on the list. Lots and lots of people ran Glen Canyon because of that. And of course, then there were the salvage surveys that were going on that there was uh, the Museum of Northern Arizona did the, the south side of the river. Mm-hmm. Uh, Utah surveyed the north side of the river. Uh, there was a historical salvage survey. They were wildlife, botany, all kinds of things going on. So, uh, you know, the I think most people accepted it at the time because th- there was nothing they could do about it. You know, mm-hmm. they tried. Uh, some people tried really hard. Ken Slight tried really hard. Uh, Katie Lee tried really hard. But there was it was the forces of the government. And I mean, they were the idea that had been building for a long time to control the Colorado River. And the, the plan was to or the catchphrase they used was to turn a natural menace into a national resource. And this is the time of the Cold War, too. Yeah. They even use the Red Scare. You know, this is this will provide power. Even if the communists bomb our power plants, uh, Glen Canyon Dam will be able to provide power and all the other dams on the on the Colorado River. Mm-hmm. So it was unstoppable, sadly. Mm. And the, the, a lot of people, I think, felt that there was nothing they could do about it and, you know, enjoy it while you can. And, the, yeah. you know, uh, other people, it really changed their lives. The guy named uh, Richard Ingebretson, Dr. Ingebretson, uh, Richard Ingebretson, who was, um, he was just a Boy Scout at the time, young man. He went down in the late days, you know, when right before the dam was, the gates were closed. You could go down as far as Cane Creek, which was, I think, I'm trying to think, 10 or 15 miles above the dam site. And you had to take out, of course, there. And so he went down with the Boy Scouts and it just it stuck with him the rest of his life. And he later, this is probably now 30 years ago, founded uh, Glen Canyon Institute, which is dedicated and still in existence and dedicated to seeing Glen Canyon restored. Hmm. And so that was rich. Um, and many other people, too. Katie Lee bemoaned it and wrote songs about it and agitated about the, the damn damn, as her license plate said. Mm-hmm. And. You know, Ken Slide, of course, he tried another tack. Of, there was already Rainbow Bridge National Monument, and he tried to sue the government that they were going to encroach on Rainbow Bridge because it was in the legislation forming it that it will remain, you know, as a national monument, will remain un, untouched and unhampered for generations. But it didn't work. There was yeah. nothing they could do. Everybody tried really hard. Uh, the, the people, the normal people who went, they, you know, I, th- I don't think anybody felt they could do anything about it. Right. Right. Yeah. Cause, uh, they started to, um, they started the construction around 1964, I believe. No, 1956, 1956. That's right. Um, so sorry. I had, a, I had another date in my head. <laughs> that's when Canyonlands became a national park, 1964. Um, yeah. so <laughs> sorry. I try to hold too many dates in my head sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also I wanted to, uh, to talk to you. So, so dam goes up. And then we start to see more jet boats on the river. You know, we start to see like Tex McClatchy and Mitch Williams and Baker sort of battling it out with the jet boats. Um, do you do you have any information on that? No, just the 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 thing I'd say about that. I mean, not specifically about them, but the thing I would say is that there were there were essentially no regulations. Right. You know, if you a great big jet boat down the river, well, all you needed was a trailer to, and a 
place to put it in the river. If you wanted to take a hundred people in a Sierra Club trip, uh, all you need is the boats. You don't yeah. need a permit. There was no regulations, no permits. Wow. Uh, there was, a, you know, there might be a park ranger like at Lee's Ferry who would say, uh, you know, be careful, don't kill yourself. <laughs> and uh, and the same thing up in Dinosaur and Cataract Canyon, even after it became a national park, uh, you know, or part of uh, Canyonlands National Park, mm-hmm. still not that many people ran it. I don't think the cataract really got going until probably into the 1970s. I could be wrong about that. But as far as people actually floating through Cataract Canyon. Mm. So the so that was the salient point, though, is that there you could do anything you wanted. You could take as many people as you wanted. You could do whatever kind of boat you wanted. You could go up. You could go down. You know, there were just no no regulating bodies, no regulations and no bodies to set regulations until into the early 1970s. And that happened, that came about all along the river in, in Cataract and Grand Canyon, Dinosaur. Well, Dinosaur was different because it was already a national monument. Yeah. But so Cataract Grand Canyon came about because it got so popular as after the, the big dam fights in the, you know, the Echo Park Dam in the late 1940s, the big news about building Glen Canyon Dam, that really got the Colorado River and Cataract and Glen Canyon and Grand Canyon into people's consciousness hmm. and they wanted to go see what it was like. Hmm. And so uh, some commercial companies started coming across tours was one, uh, the hatches, um, Ken Slight, uh, uh, Don Harris had his own company and so on. They started coming in numbers. And since there were no regulations, the canyons started to get trashed. People oh. would poop and dig a hole and poop and leave a, a little toilet paper flower they would dig holes and leave all their trash. They would have big fires. Uh, they would set driftwood piles on fire. And so the um, the West by this time there was a group called the Western River Guides Association, mm-hmm. which had formed. That was not just not just commercial guides, but anybody who was interested in the river. There were kind of two categories of membership: uh, guides and river runners. And um, they finally saw this happening and went to specifically in, in our case, to the state of Utah, and said, we need regulations. We yeah. need something to happen here to stop this, because we we try the best we can, but there's so many people on the river right now. And, and, you know, in today's numbers, it's not that many, but it was enough. And as we know, it's such a delicate resource that they were starting to have a real bad impact. And so mm-hmm. the state of Utah started imposing regulations on, you know, carry these grew over time. But it started out with carry out your trash. Don't set things on fire. Yeah. You know, don't poop on sandbars, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And they also uh, putting in place safety regulations that you needed a certain kind of boat. You needed a life jacket. If you look at old films of those times and old pictures, you see a lot of people running rapids with no life jackets. Yeah. <laughs> they just didn't, do, you know, off, sometimes they would, sometimes they were hard to find because mm-hmm. up until the early 1970s, really, everything people used on the river was surplus. You bought surplus boats, surplus radio, uh, uh, 20 millimeter ammo cans and rocket boxes, uh, radio boxes that were waterproof boats, everything was surplus. Yeah. And when those finally started running out, you know, people, it was hard to get gear Boat, you know, they keep boats together, they patch them and stuff, but it was hard to get gear until the early 1970s hmm. when the uh, manufacturers started making boats and so on. So, um, and another problem they had was safety. Uh, one of the uh, groups that went through Glen Canyon a lot was a kind of a co-op called Sakatwa. 
and that stands for South Cottonwood Ward, which was it was a a Mormon river and co-op. That's the only way you can really describe it. Mm-hmm. Where guys were cousins, Dale Labram and um, uh, why did I just forget that guy's name because I interviewed him. But anyway, these two cousins got together, bought a boat, started pe- taking people from their local ward, which was in uh, in Murray in Salt Lake area in the Salt Lake Valley, and this just grew to the point by after a few years they would have 30 boats on the water on several different trips they'd have um you join the co-op for 50 dollars. an eight-day glen canyon trip was uh, 75 dollars, and they were participatory where they, they they pumped the boats they they had cleaning crews just like a private trip mm-hmm. you know they had clean as you work for a couple of days on your boats and so on and they introduced lots and lots and lots of people to the river and people made relationships, met their wives, made best friends and so on. But one thing about them is they had a terrible safety record and people were always breaking their arms and legs and knocking their heads when they fell. And sadly, even several deaths happened on hmm. Sagapa trip. And so the, this got to be known. And in 1963, finally, this wasn't really on the river, but they were, uh, they had a big old steak bed truck and they had it loaded with rolled up boats and outboard motors and all kinds of stuff. And they were down on the road that goes down to hole in the rock in Glen Canyon mm-hmm. and the boat they had, and the, they used to ride on top of the truck. So all these boy scouts and all these guys were on top of the steak, the, the steak bed truck that was loaded with all this gear and the truck rolled and um, 12 or 13 of them were killed. This wow. is terrible. And that really, that really um, made the state of Utah sit up and say, we cannot allow this to go on. So in fact, when I first started researching, this is in the early 1980s, I first started researching to write books. I went to a guy at the state of Utah, uh, outdoor, what it was called then, outdoor recreation, and asked him about, you know, interviewed him about safety regulations and so on. He says, this is the first time I ever heard of him. He says, you ever heard of Sakatwa? And I said, no, I haven't. And he says, that's why we have regulations. <laughs> so <laughs> because of those guys, because they had not only the, the terrible accident with the truck, but they had uh, one, two, three people that I can think of die on the river wow. through accident because they were just, they were enthusiastic, but they didn't have any, a lot of idea what they were doing. Hmm. So that, that was, uh, that's where the regulations for that kind of thing came from. So by that point, I think, you know, if you think of the 1960s as the the hippie days, you know, the late 1960s, mm-hmm. early 1960s, I always kind of equate that with this big push to be outdoors. You know, the book comes out, On the Loose, by uh, Rennie Russell and his brother Terry. That was a big Sierra Club book that was all about being outdoors and, you know, and communing with nature. And that was a big theme of the late 1960s, the, that kind of back-to-earth movement. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what also affected river running people heard about river running they saw it on the news they they saw georgie would show films um marston would show films you know a lot of people would do that and uh it it just got to be well known enough that a lot of people wanted to go and after the 19s early 1970s i think it was when river running really exploded people Mm. everybody started to go and that's when uh rubber fabricators who would who was a manufacturer in west virginia i think that had been making these boats for the army and the air, the military and the big pontoon boats, the big bridge pontoons and so on. They started building um, commercial boats. They designed the first boats that were made 
not commercial, but the first boats that were designed for river running, not for as a life raft or an assault raft or something. Mm -hmm. And those were the GRB, the Green River Boat. And then there was a Yampa River Boat, a Selway River Boat, and so on. And they started selling those in the early 1970s. Mm -hmm. And then other manufacturers started picking up on that. There was a little company called Udisco that made these these super cheap boats. I mean, that was the first boat I ever had. And we <laughs> bought it in uh, in Vernal in 1978 or so. And it was $243. I remember that. And a guy came out, I named Bill McGinnis, came out with a book called, I think it was called Whitewater Rafting. And it was kind of a how-to, how to do this, how to build a frame, how to build a dry box, how to how to uh, mount your oars on the frame, and so on. And we use that, by myself and my friends, and a lot of other people use that as their guide to get into private boating. Yeah. And, you know, the commercial outfitters were building up at the time. There was still a lot of, of, of those people, of course, too. But private boating really got started once you could get, you could buy a boat, you know that on your own so interesting man this is this is fantastic <laughs> um <clears throat> i i actually had actually had a question for you um do you know are there any records that we know of on the colorado river where someone has set the record for like traversing um at a a certain CFS, like, oh, this person did it at the highest CFS. Yeah. You know, um, that's a good question. Not that, um, I know that people have done that, whether uh -huh. those just, I mean, I've heard that word of mouth. I'm, yeah. I'm sure everybody has that you ran it at, at, you know, at 120 or something or 102, whatever it was in 1983, uh -huh. the really big high one before that was, uh, I think 1954, 1956, there was a really huge flood in 1956. I'm pretty sure it was. That was, I think, I think close to 120,000 CFS. Wow. And so there were people on the river at the time. And those were, I mean, those were very dangerous. And, um, but you know, these were experienced boaters by the time, yeah. the ones that were on. And so they made it through. Um, I know there's a, a guy, oh, I can't think of his name who has, set himself the task of floating every inch of the green in Colorado. Uh, what is his name? Warren. Um, I can't think of it. But so there's that kind of thing too going on, but there are, um, I mean, there were quite a few people who were on the river in those, those great big floods in the, you know, 83 and 84. And then in 1956, and there were, there were people on the river, not as many in the fifties, of course, right. but in 83, a lot of people on the river mm -hmm. and uh, you know, those are, perilous times there was even <laughs> that guy there was a guy in moab whose name i cannot remember but i heard about him who would swim those oh my god he, when the water got <laughs> cataract canyon and i'm sure some of your listeners probably know of this guy i can't yeah. think of his name but uh he would swim it and you know he'd get to to uh spanish bottoms and get in his life jacket and there you go and he did it uh successfully several times and then finally one time uh, he disappeared and he, you know, it, it got him, you know, the graveyard of the Colorado oh, kind of got him. So, so I, yeah, I'm sure your listeners, some of your listeners must know. Yeah. Know that. So, man, this is, uh, this has been wonderful. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed listening about all of these pioneers of the Colorado river and, uh, what we do today. And, uh, 
this has just been absolutely wonderful. And uh, so, yeah, that's a surface you might say. I mean, there are so many, so many great stories in that. Oh yeah. Of era because it was really kind of the, the wild west in a way, you know, the 1940s, 50s, yeah. 60s were just, there's so many great stories. And those are, you know, I've talked mostly about commercial boaters, uh-huh. but there were boaters too, uh, Grand Canyon, Cataract Canyon, that um, were trying different kinds of boats. There was the, the Wind River races. A lot of people went up to on the Wind River in Wyoming that a lot of the Colorado, or the Colorado River boaters would take their boats up and they would do these timed races on the Wind River. And it's it's quite big rapids in uh, what's called Granite Canyon, I think. And uh, just wild stuff that was going on all along the river because, again, no regulations. Nobody tell you you can't. So you just do whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> oh, crazy, crazy times. <laughs> Can you imagine if that was, was allowed today? Oh, it would be a disaster. <laughs> yes, it would be. Oh man. Well, you know, um, I could, I could keep going on. I, I could keep listening all, all day, man. <laughs> That's our time though. <laughs> Roy, thank you so much. Um, I, I really greatly appreciate it. I know, I know my listeners are, uh, have thoroughly enjoyed listening. I, we had, we got so much feedback on that first episode that we did. And, um, I had several people approach me asking to have you back. So here we are. And, um, so this has just been, um, this has been a lot of fun, a lot of fun, man, for sure. That's very so, nice. Thank you. Awesome. I always enjoyed. Cool. Well, you guys, um, that does it for another episode of the history hour here on KZMU. Uh, tune in next month, same time, same place right here on KZMU. You can catch the History Hour on the KZMU Airwaves on the last Monday of every month at 4 p.m.